the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Everyone is into figuring out how they can get to heaven by what they do rather than what somebody has already done. God's gift of righteousness. Yeah, that's the word gift. We'll talk about that next here on Abounding Grace. Everybody loves receiving gifts. The problem is we want to attach some kind of reciprocation to it as a means of not just saying thanks, but qualifying the gift. And that's where we stumble and fall into troubles. Welcome to Abounding Grace from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're continuing our journey through Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31 today, God's gift of righteousness. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's program. It's hard to hear for God to tell us the truth about ourselves, particularly since we live in a lying age with smoke screens, excuses, masks, and pretending. It is hard for us to hear the truth. It is kind of like it was in the days of Jeremiah. The prophets prophesy lies, he said. And does Joseph say the Gentiles love to have it that way? No, he says, my people love to have it that way. Just give us lies, pleasant fictions to cover up the truth about ourselves. In the verses we looked at last Lord's Day, that truth is not very pleasant, is it? Paul wrote this to believers Because he knew that we would never appreciate God's grace to us and we will never cling to Jesus Christ and never hold him precious as we should unless we really deal honestly with who we are in our sinfulness and unless at one level we don't forget how God has brought us up out of the miry clay and kept us from walking off the precipice right into the chasm of hell by his grace and his mercy. What did he say about us briefly in verse 11 of chapter 3? He said, we have no understanding. We don't seek God. We hide from him. We run from him. We hide then from the truth about ourselves. We go out of the way. We become useless and unprofitable. There is no one Who does good? No, not one. Our lips are filthy, James says. No one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison and violence and bloodshed. In verse 16, everything we touch brings destruction and misery. We see this in our nation very clearly. For there is no peace. And God already said in Isaiah 48, 21, there is no peace for the wicked So if you don't know God and you're not at peace with him, you can't be at peace with men, beloved. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
that's us. In ourselves, we do not fear God. We do not adore his majesty. We do not tremble before him. We do not dread offending him. In fact, we just pretend we are our own gods. And we walk around earth looking and thinking as if our thoughts and our ways are the best there could ever be. But then God's truth comes to us like it does here and it exposes us. And why does God do this to us? I mean, we would certainly prefer lies and pleasant fiction. But he does this to us, we see in verse 19, to shut our mouths. And because he wants to remind us of something very important. And that is, in ourselves we are guilty. We are condemned before his majesty. And there is none that can escape. Our own words condemn us, measured against his holiness, even on our best day. If God were to take the best nanoseconds of our existence and say, I am only going to judge you on that, everything else I will just throw away. The best nanoseconds of our existence would be enough to consign us to everlasting hell. Because we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We have not feared Him as we should. We have not walked before Him in integrity. Now, that's not pleasant. And if you were to put that on a church sign out in front of the church, not many people would come to listen to that. But that is only half of the story. But you have to hear that half. And I'm telling you, our nation needs to hear that half. The church is going to need to hear that half once again. Because Jesus says, I'm sending my Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. This is one of his fundamental works in this world. To take the mask off of our self-deception. To hold up before our eyes a mirror that we don't want. So we must see ourselves before his majesty. Then thoroughly displeased with ourselves. It is then we begin to aspire to God. Because of what he has done. Verse 21. But now. That phrase is precious. That phrase announces that God has done what we could not do. Isaiah said in chapter 59, seeing that there was none to help, seeing that there was none that can bring righteousness, none to deliver, God says, my own arm has brought salvation. That is what that phrase points us right back to. And now against the backdrop of all of our filth, all of our ingratitude, all of the ways we run from God and do our own thing, God could have left us there. He would have been perfectly just to left, leave us there. And we couldn't complain. And yet in His mercy and in His goodness, He has come and He has given us a righteousness that will be accepted by Him. Now, this doesn't refer to God's essential righteousness as the eternal, holy God. 
This is a righteousness that is particularly pleasing to him. This is a righteousness that we have to have as a condition of fellowship with him. And it is a perfect righteousness. And it is a righteousness that will stand the gaze of his scrutiny. Looking into every area of our darkened minds and our black hearts. A righteousness that that covers all of that and makes us approved before him. And God has done this righteousness. This is his righteousness in his domain supremely and exclusively. Follow the light of nature. Follow your preferred religious traditions. Follow your own fairy tales in your own life. After all, I'm okay There are other people who are a lot worse than I am. I'm better than a lot of people I know. Maybe I'll just get lost in the herd of humanity when we all stand before God. No, sir. No, ma'am. When we stand before God, the standard will be his own rectitude, his own moral righteousness before which the cleanest have to put their hand upon their lips like Job, and confess, I loathe myself, and I repent in sackcloth and in ashes, because our cleanness is filthiness in his sight, until he gives us righteousness, the righteousness that is pleasing to him. He does this, beloved. We need to be really persuaded of this. And we're not going to be unless we see our filth, It is amazing how much we cling to the thought, but I can do something. That is why Paul writes in verses 10 through 15, showing us our filth. He's pulling the rug all the way out from under us. And we are falling into the abyss of hell. And then comes God to us in his righteousness and he delivers us. Notice his righteousness is apart from the law here. Now, we need to be careful. This doesn't mean that this is a righteousness that God says, that mean old nasty law. I'm not going to think about that anymore. No, I mean, all you have to do is spend 10 minutes in the Gospels, and you'll see our Lord Jesus Christ, both in his life and in his sacrifice, there was one thing that was the pole star of his life. It is written, he says, over and over again. I will always do those things that please my Father. So the very thought that the righteousness of God has nothing to do with His law is an insult to His majesty, and it cheapens grace. Now, without the law is a contrast between His power and our weakness. Because we cannot keep the law, or we should, but we can't, and it condemns us without forgiving It exposes us without showing us the way forward. This is something that is totally outside of our power and our ability. This is something we must do, but we cannot. And so he has done it for us. He has manifested it. We see in verse 21. This is a very powerful verb there. It is the perfect tense in Greek. There is a dramatic nuance to it. There is a permanence attached to it. There is a finality attached to it. What the law could not do, 
that it was weak through our sin. God has done. He has manifested it. He has revealed the very righteousness that he requires. Now think about this. We are sound asleep right now in comparison to how dependent we are upon the manifestation of his righteousness. Right now we see a lot of people who, yes, are outwardly worse than we are. We are nicely dressed. We have food to go home to. But one day we're going to stand before the majesty of God. And our only hope is this one little line that God has manifested his righteousness. At the hour, he is not going to say, did you obey me? Let me look at your life. And if you kept every one of my righteous and pure and good and holy laws, which you should have kept in perpetuity and perfection, and personally, my law should have been the passion and the pole star of your life, but it was not. And our prayer should be in thanksgiving that he has manifested this righteousness in each one of us, which is outside of our strength, beyond our ability, and yet he has brought righteousness to us by his arm and by his power. Now careful here, so we don't misunderstand. He says this very righteousness was manifested by the law and the prophets. And Paul says, in effect here, this righteousness is nothing new. I didn't just dream this doctrine up five minutes ago. This is what the law taught. All of those sacrifices in the Old Testament law. Do you remember what Moses did when the covenant was renewed? He had a covenant renewal ceremony. And there was the law and the book of the covenant. And what did he do? Animals were slaughtered. A hyssop branch was dipped in the blood and everyone and everything was sprinkled with that blood over and over and over again. And Paul says in Hebrews 10 that in those repetitions of sacrifice, there was a remembrance made of sins every year. It was known that these sacrifices would not finally and fully atone for sin, but they pointed to something better. The priesthood God set up in his law, that was to give his people hope of a perfect intercessor that would come. The purity of the law created a longing in the hearts of God's people, like David who proclaimed, Oh, how I love the law of God. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceedingly broad. Every one of your words is purified in a furnace seven times. When the god godly read God's word of the old covenant, read the word of God's old covenant, they saw the purity of it, and they longed for fellowship with God. We turn to the prophets. What did Isaiah say? He said he, Christ, would bear the sins of many. He would be numbered among the transgressors. He would pour out his soul unto death. He would bear our sins away. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, which has tremendous bearing upon what we are looking at today. He said, in that day, a branch will come forth, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. You see, God promised these things throughout all the way back 
Zechariah comes on the scene and he says, Arise, O sword, against my shepherd and strike him down so the sheep shall be delivered. Ezekiel says in chapter 36, verse 27, A new heart will I give you. I'll sprinkle clean water upon you. I will make all things new. You see, Paul says this is the same righteousness that was witnessed in the law and in the prophets. Not our ability, not our strength. We don't have any. This is God's promise, God's power, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness. And it comes through that one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we understand where Paul is going with this. But our understanding must not put us to sleep. Because what he says here is very specific about the Lord Jesus Christ and this righteousness. The Son of God took upon himself our flesh. He was God's elect, God's anointed. God's beloved in whom his soul was well pleased and he was made for us righteousness the only righteousness Luke in Acts said there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your house listen in Jesus Christ God's only begotten son. That is where the righteousness alone is found. That will stand up before the tribunal of almighty God. It is his obedience, his suffering, his propitiation, which we will look at next Lord's Day in place of our filth and our wrath. He is the righteous one. That is why Jeremiah 23, 5 says, the Lord, our righteousness. And that is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. His every step was, I come to do thy will, O my God, and your law is written within my heart. We have pushed God's law far away, but God, or but Jesus, he took it in and he kept it and he delighted in it. When tempted by Satan, who said, hey, You can bring forth bread in your own strength. Don't depend upon your father. Christ responded, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Thus it is written. Hey, you are really the son of God, so prove it. You're you're living in obscurity. You are left here in the desert and you have nothing. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. If you are really the son of God, the angels will come and they, they will bear you up. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Thus it is written. Every one of his precious breaths was, I have come to do thy will, O my God. I always do those things that please my Father. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. You see, it is very important for us in an age that wants to reduce the gospel to just Jesus' death on the cross. To understand that his death on the cross is powerless without the obedience of life behind it. You've got to have both of those things. 
The old theologians talked about this as Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. Those terms can be a little bit confusing, but it is because he obeyed his father. It is because his every will was to do his father's will. Not my will, but thine be done. That his offering on the cross is so effectual to be our righteousness before almighty God. Now understand when Paul says by the faith of Jesus, he doesn't mean by faith, faith in my faith. Because properly speaking, faith never saved anyone. It is Christ who saves through faith, faith that we can't conjure up in our own strength. And not all men have faith, said Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.2. For faith is what? It is God's gift. And we see that in Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Faith is directed to Christ. It looks to him as the only lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His obedience, not mine. His sacrifice on the cross in place of my filth. Faith in Christ, clinging. Faith, he doesn't say, faith doesn't say, hey, okay, I believe. Let me just move on with my life. No, it holds on to him. I must have his righteousness. I must have Christ. Faith draws all of its life, all of its strength from abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in him. And it is Christ satisfied. This is what faith is. It is Christ directed, Christ specific, Christ satisfied. It's not my works after I became a Christian. Those don't make me any more right with God or any more righteous than his perfect obedience in his life and his death on the cross. Christ satisfied. He has paid it all. He has obeyed in my place. And it looks to him specifically as the only satisfaction for our sins. The only righteousness. That verb manifested in verse 21 controls the idea of faith in verse 22. The idea is that it is a continual belief. It's not just once. We don't pray, Jesus save me one time, and then we go away using our subsequent performance. Faith doesn't call upon him once and stay cold and silence. Faith grows in its love for Jesus. It grows in its specific attachment to his person as the Holy One of God, the only righteous one. Faith doesn't hang on in the inner courts of the temple like the Gentiles used to. It pierces the veil. And it sees the sword of justice about to fall on my neck. And I have to walk over there and put my head on the block and say, This is just. But then it sees the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It beholds the Son of Righteousness with healing on His wings. The shepherd struck down in our place. The lamb looking as if it had been slain. The servant of the Lord who came to do the will of his father. Faith clings to the obedience and the righteousness of Christ. It hears his, I always do those things that please my father. And it clings to that. Do you? Because unless you and I have perfectly, without a moment's flinching, Without a moment drawing back, not one nanosecond, 
unless we have always done those things that please our Father, unless every single breath we take is to please Him, we will go to hell for it. Because in the fall, Adam's corruption is a spewing fountain of poison producing our actual transgression. And there is only one who can fulfill, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why faith loves to study the Gospels. It holds on to those little declarations that Jesus made, like, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. I always do those things that please him. Or what Peter says about him in Acts 10, he went about doing good. That is my salvation, that he obeyed where I have been filthy and stubborn, that he was submissive where I have been a wild, stubborn mule, that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, whereas I have sinned with a high hand in all of my life, so much so that it is a wonder that God allows me to live another second Faith clings to Jesus Christ and it stays within the veil and it wants more of Christ and to know more of him and to be found in him, not having any righteousness of his own, which is by the law, but that which is through the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org. And if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.